Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, our roundtable. But first, joining us is Kevin Craven, who is the chief executive of ADS, uh, the association that represents British defense and aerospace companies. Uh, he is somebody with decades of experience in the sector, uh, having also served as Serco's uh, defense uh, chief. Uh, and I should also say that the organization is the host of uh, one of the world's truly great industrial gatherings and, uh, and air shows, the Farnborough International Air Show that starts uh, in uh, the Hampshire countryside in just a couple of weeks. Kevin, thanks so very much for joining us. It's my pleasure and great to be on your show. Thank you for inviting me. And before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. And Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. And General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And check out our two weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters, and the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space. A pleasure having you on, and congratulations uh, again. Uh, you uh, assumed uh, the reins, uh, even though you were ADS's uh, defense chief before uh, doing so uh, in September of last year, and a very, very difficult time to have been serving in the uh, organization. Obviously, the upcoming Farnborough gathering is the first time in person in four years. Um, talk to us, Kevin, a little bit about what are going to be the themes? Because the world is a very different place uh, today than it was four years ago. We have war in, in Europe, inflation is running high, supply chains are strained. We have all the experience uh, from uh, COVID, uh, unfortunately, as well. What are going to be some of the themes we're going to see uh, play out uh, in, in the week uh, at the air show? I think there's going to be quite a lot of discussion and focus around the challenges that exist in the industries at the moment. Um, and I think amongst those will be some that the, you've mentioned in terms of supply chains, the resilience of those, the recovery from the COVID pandemic, then going straight into ramping up a production followed by the skills and labor shortages that we're seeing, followed by uh, the war in Ukraine, which has disrupted raw materials uh, and has also put uh, a strain on stockpiles as well. Uh, so, so I think there will be a huge amount of discussion around that inevitably, uh, because these are big themes that are happening in the macro world at the moment. But more importantly than that, I, I am hoping and I'm pretty certain that we're going to have some really good conversations about the important strategic themes that exist in aerospace and defense. And, you know, the timing just could not be better in many ways in that um, we are post COP26 earlier in the year in uh, Scotland. And we are ahead of the ICAO General Assembly, uh, which is coming up shortly at the UN. And, you know, for aerospace, we are at an existential point in time in many ways, as the in industry figures out how to transition both its business model and its uh, technology into uh, running in a net zero world. Uh, and the challenges of that technology and business model shift are huge. And, you know, remarkably, I've seen, um, particularly here in Europe, a huge amount of focus and energy going into those questions and the sector actually aligning neatly behind the three pillars of technology that are going to help us get through that existential challenge. You know, society is looking at the things we do, like flying, and saying, you know, can we do these things in a sustainable way? Right. Otherwise, I might change my behavior. Well, it's up to our manufacturers and uh, our members to be saying, well, you can fly sustainably. This is how you're going to do it, and this is when you're going to do it. So that's going to be, I think, one of the really key elements of um, Farnborough this year. And I know we're going to talk about um, the Aerospace Global Forum at Farnborough at some point, but that's maybe the area where we will have some of these tough conversations. 
But just returning to the strategic themes that we will see at Farnborough, um, I'm, I'm pretty sure we're also going to be looking at the recovery of air, aerospace, because bearing in mind, right. of course, as production rates are still ramping up, we are still, in terms of global travel figures, down on narrow-body flights by around about 30-odd percent. Wide-body flights are still down by much more than that, 45% globally. Uh, and aircraft production rates are still coming back up to their norms. Um, and that ramp-up is challenging in of itself. From a defence point of view, you know, Ukraine uh, has really moved the dial. First of all, it is a war on continental Europe uh, ground. So that is a big deal. Uh, stockpiles have been exhausted in terms of the replenishment and supply to Ukraine. Uh, so just the ordinary ramp up of those production lines, some of which have been you know, out of business for, for years, um, is, a, is, a, is a big deal. Right. Then there is the change of tactics and the style of warfare, and what does that mean for future requirements? So I think, you know, you're absolutely right. There is a lot of things that are happening in the world today, and Farnborough is going to be the place where the industry gets together to talk about these things. You guys uh, try to improve the user experience each each time uh, the pandemic forced the change in how you do business. I think even though sometimes people whinge uh, at what it costs uh, to to attend, ultimately it's for a good cause to represent British and to be a showcase for British aerospace and defense and also give you the revenue to be able to do those good works for your uh, association uh, globally in, in, in the conferences and the, and the help uh, sessions and, and, and uh, all of that that you guys do. Give us a sense on a little bit on what's going to be new uh, for for people this time around, shaped by the pandemic uh, experience, um, as as you've tried to make it uh, more exclusive, bigger, uh, easier to attend, what what have you? Yes, so we have spent quite a lot of time and effort on the user experience. So both getting in and out of Farnborough, I am very confident that the customer experience uh, is going to be uh, a great one and uh, people can expect their uh, meeting experience at the show to be better. We have uh, changed the way we operate uh, the meeting approach, and um, we've got a, a, a new uh, app that will help uh, members, delegates, uh, and other parties get together uh, called the Business Connections Exchange. Uh, and so there's a lot of little improvements around the show that just may have been thoughtfully introduced to make the individual experience better. From a uh, event and entertainment perspective, uh, of course, we have also focused on that. There's been some changes around how we run the Friday, which you might remember as Futures Friday. That will now be called Pioneers of Tomorrow and is focused on very much introducing the next generation to come into the industry uh, on what an exciting place this is to work, what a diverse place it is to work, and how you know the, the flexible requirements for our younger generations around work patterns, style, the uh, commitments that the organizations make to uh, corporate responsibility, all of those things will be showcased uh, together with the exciting technologies, as well, of course, uh, you know, the, the red arrows, uh, you know, doing their display uh, for that audience as well. I mentioned it a bit earlier, but one of the key changes is that in addition to uh, the Farnborough International Air Show, which, as you know, is busy and crazy for everybody who attends. Um, but we've managed to shoehorn in uh, in a huge new hall, uh, a 700-seater uh, auditorium, where we'll be holding the Aerospace Global Forum. 
Uh, and that has got some great speakers already confirmed. You know, we have a number of the global CEOs like Guillaume Fourri from Airbus, Warren East from Rolls-Royce, Charles Woodburn from uh, BAE Systems, and so on and so on, together with some of the great academics uh, who are, have worldwide reputations in sustainability. So that uh, forum is going to be a place where, uh, you know, the action that is required to move the industry. So we are very focused on, um, you know, action-oriented discussions rather than, um, you know, a, just a, 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 a gentle pitter-patter of um, talk. So to give you an example, the first session, um, which will be led by uh, Guillaume Fauré from Airbus and Dr. Joseph Ashbacher from the ESA, the European Space Agency, is called Immediate Action at Every Altitude. Um, you right. know, some of the other themes would be around decarbonizing aviation, bringing together an ecosystem. Uh, and we'll have um, some people like Joe Ben Bivert from Joby Aviation on that panel uh, and so on and so forth. So a uh, huge, exciting event. We've timed it so it's very short, very snappy over the sort of lunchtime period every day right. uh, to allow people to get in and out and get back to doing great business uh, with their clients, which, of course, is why we're all here. Um, we've got uh, just uh, about a minute left, but I want to ask you uh, about the uh, impact uh, on, as, as we discussed at the, at the, as you discussed at the top of the program, right? We're in an inflationary period, 9.1% uh, in the UK, uh, US running uh, high as well, manpower shortages, supply chain uh, challenges. Uh, what uh, is the organization and your membership telling you, uh, and you try to be that honest broker and advocate uh, to the the British government uh, in in terms of this, uh, what are some of the challenges you and the membership are conveying to the government? And in turn, what is it that you'd like um, the government to be helping industry out on uh, at what is an extremely challenging time? Again, coming out of the pandemic, uh, people have taken a hit. Your organization took a hit, uh, unfortunately, Kevin. Right? I mean, I think people, as much as they whinge for the cost of it, uh, it does go for good works and. Uh, is 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 valuable for the organization. So skipping a farm bureau is is a tectonic uh, event. Um, ultimately, what 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 are they telling you? What are you telling the government? What's an expectation on what government is telling you about how they can uh, help uh, a, a sector uh, that is absolutely critical to the to the to the British uh, British economy? And you know, one thing I'm I am pleased to say is that the working patterns that uh, the industries um, developed during COVID and the forums that we developed uh, with the government are still running. So there has been a change in that dynamic, um, which is handy because, you know, let's be honest, um, the governments don't have any more money either. You know, the cost of um, subsidizing economies during COVID uh, and then uh, the cost of living crisis that ordinary citizens are struggling with at the moment has meant that um, the resources uh, have been few and far between. But, you know, the, the, so in these forums, we have got a very strong exchange of information up to the minute around things like raw material shortages, uh, actions taken to mitigate those that can be shared with perhaps other members of the sector, uh, and a, a real focus on where you know small interventions can make a big difference. So, for example, um, cash flow at a, an SME or a small business level, you know, is pretty crucial. You know, when you get up to the prime integrator level, um, yes, it's important, but, you know, a couple hundred thousand pounds is not going to make that much of a difference. So targeting and helping those smaller businesses down the ecosystem um, using intelligence shared both by members and by the government is the kind of things that we've been doing together. One thing I'd really point to, for example, is, you know, despite the um, shortage of resources picture that I've pointed to, 
uh, you know, in March this year, the government um, announced the funding for the Aerospace Technology Institute, which was a, a big uplift over the current spend that has been in place since 2014. So there was a commitment for £685 million over the next three years and a further commitment uh, with funding unspecified out for 10 years. So that certainty and that investment in R&D, which is matched by industry through the aerospace um, growth partnership, um, is going to see £1.3 billion of investment going in uh, over the next couple of years, which is great to see. And we're seeing similar programs um, happening from and forums happening in the defense world whereby um you know only on monday there was a round table between number 10 uh which was hosted by secretary of state for the defense uh, plus 13 industry leaders to both get a download on the strategic situation in ukraine but then to move forward to the opportunities that are opening up uh, from an export perspective on um, the eastern flank and northern flanks of Europe, where uh, members of NATO and potential new members of NATO are talking to people like Britain about their requirements and their needs. So, uh, and that picture on international exports is one where finally we are seeing, you know, the government stepping up and really thinking about both the needs of the global Britain, which is one of the ambitions announced by this government, R&D, global superpower. Uh, you know, these are all catchphrases and aspirations unless backed up by plans. And, you know, we are seeing some of that global Britain emerging in terms of the support that government is giving to defence exports uh, as well. Not necessarily just in aerospace, but also in other sectors like maritime, for example. So a huge range of things happening that are quite um, exciting to see in terms of the channels are there, they're being used, and we are seeing outputs improve. In terms of is it going to solve everything? Uh, no, it's not. You know, we are going to see wage demands and skill shortages for, you know, a couple of years yet. And I think the area where we could do more as a country is on skills. I genuinely believe uh, that that is something where we need to do some more. Um, and this is an industry where over the last couple of years through the pandemic, we have grown our apprentice numbers um, up to 19,250 apprentices. Um, so, you know, unprecedented against that pandemic picture, but part of the solution to that skill shortage is growing the next generation. It's not good enough for tomorrow, but it might be good enough for the year after. Uh, indeed, Kevin, and, and that's one of the great things uh, about uh, the event is it gets everybody together and it energizes uh, a new generation so that in 30, 40 years time, uh, they're sitting where we are either running the industry, either covering it or, or, or serving uh, in, in government uh, and in uniform. Thanks so very much for joining us. All the best of luck in the final phases, getting ready and look forward to uh, talking to you at the show and indeed uh, beyond. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Really good to talk to you. Markets gained back ground over the past week as the Fed hinted that another rate increase is likely to curb rising inflation. That hit 9.1% in the United Kingdom this week. The EU moved to expand membership candidacy to Ukraine and Moldova as donors ponied up more aid. As NATO leaders prepare to meet this coming week, as Washington and London have already said they plan to sanction Russian gold at the G7. And the big news was Spain's decision to buy new Eurofighter Typhoon jets. The Emirates want more big jets. And former Collins president and CEO Dave Gitlin has joined the Boeing board. This as the company seeks more money from the Air Force to finish development of a new presidential jet that is over budget and behind schedule and now coming out of the aerospace giant's pocket. 
Joining us today, as they do every week to discuss all this and more, are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tusa of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy uh, in Washington, D.C., starting next week from Europe. Everybody, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, it's always a pleasure, Vago. Thank you. Happy Sunday, Vago. Great to be here. Indeed, everybody. Thanks uh, so very much for joining us. Uh, Ron, uh, start us off. Not as bad uh, of a week. How did the group perform and why? Yeah, if you look broadly on the week, uh, the S&P for the week was up about six and a half percent. And then some of the bellwethers that we tend to track uh, on a weekly basis. Boeing was uh, up about three and a half percent. It actually underperformed the S&P for the week, but that was on a very strong week last week. So it just sort of, I think, balanced it out. Uh, Northrop Grumman was up four and a half percent, four and a half percent, Raytheon almost six percent. Um, you know, the kind of the real uh, shining star, at least in our coverage this week, was Palantir. Um, that was up almost 25 percent. And I think what you can take away there is that there was uh, a move in the market to some risk taking. So um, for any number of reasons that uh, you can imagine or make up, um, the market it kind of shifted to a, a bit of a, a, a risk-loving, uh, risk-taking uh, posture from uh, being more defensive. Now, just to, to remind everybody, um, you know, the VIX was still near 30. It's still a pretty volatile market out there, but um, this was a week where the market did shift to um, taking on risk. Uh, if you look at the uh, 10-year, the 10-year yield was above 3% at about 3.15%. Uh, and, and like I mentioned, the VIX was just, just below 30 um, so it was, you know, all in all, uh, 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 a good week for, for for returns, and the group broadly did well. Uh, but I, I would I would also mention this; it's pretty interesting. Um, you know, Raytheon up six percent, uh, Northrop up four and a half percent. Both the defense side and the aerospace side of the group um, did well. There wasn't um, a shift from one side to the other. Um, both sides uh, broadly broadly did pretty well. Um, did um, the markup uh, play into this? We we heard from uh, Michael Herson in a roundtable on Friday uh, that it's about $37 billion, uh, right? So we're going to be around that mark likely by the time we end up in terms of the plus sub, not as big as $100 billion, not as big as $50 billion, certainly not $150 billion. Um, how are markets re- responding to that? And, and more importantly, how do you analyze some of the moves uh, that are coming out of markup, Ron? Yeah, so you I mean you, that thirty-seven billion? I think would put us at about what uh, all in around eight forty um, when we were looking for somewhere around around eight fifty, um, and then that markup—it's unclear to me. Maybe you can shed some light on this, Fago, if that includes um, you know some of the effectively OCO spending that's being used uh, to support the Ukraine. I don't believe it does. Um, so we'll we'll see where we'll see where it all falls out. But the, you know the budget being above where um, the administration asked for. I think is broadly seen as positive, particularly in light of the fact that if you just rewind the clock um, to uh, maybe a year ago, the broad expectations in the market in the market was you'd see defense spending in, you know, in, in real and nominal terms decline uh, year on year on year over the next several years, and that's clearly not the environment we're in. Um, as we've put in in you know written form before, we are looking for the defense budget to be approaching about one trillion dollars by 2026, um, and and we're still thinking that's going to be the case, right? It doesn't really change all that much. Um, but but like I said, when you look at the market today, the, the market's really driven, being driven more by factors, macro factors, risk on, risk off, risk off uh, interest right. rate outlook, not so much uh, the, the micro view. Richard, I'm going to uh, break a uh, regular order here and sort of get your sense, because I know you track markup pretty quickly and, and some of the granular elements of it. We're going to talk about the next generation air dominance airplane and Boeing's call uh, or efforts to try uh, to get uh, Air Force One uh, money, uh, more money out of the Air Force for Air Force One. But what are some interesting markup takeaways from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, what was most interesting was the relatively tepid number, I believe, seven F-35s added, because, of course, there had been this very drastic cut relative to the plan, and everyone was expecting a pretty significant plus-up, and they added some, but it wasn't like, okay, we're completely going back to the, you know, 50 or so we expected on the A models for the Air Force, which means perhaps they know something that we don't fully understand or fully uh, have heard about with NGAT. Uh, in other words, maybe there is a kind of willingness to wait and see uh, just on the basis of how NGAD seems to be evolving at a quicker pace than expected. Other than that, there, there wasn't a whole lot of uh, needle movers in the, in the markups. 
And we're going to talk about that in a minute because uh, we we um, the secretary of the Air Force, Frank Kendall, uh, made a statement that said, hey, even though the program is moving into engineering and manufacturing development, EMD, it hasn't been down selected yet. And there is no winner in that. And we have been speculating over the past couple of weeks on who might the winner of this program be to move forward, which is certainly an unusual acquisition strategy. But we can get more uh, get get to that uh, in a minute. Sasha was a very big uh, week uh, in Europe, notwithstanding that Boris Johnson uh, got some tough news uh, in two by-elections that were seen as a bellwether for his uh, administration. Uh, but we also had the EU extend candidacy to Ukraine and, and Moldova. Uh, Ukraine made a tactical retreat from Severodonetsk. Uh, and then, you know, and new arms are flowing to the battlefield, which is going to change uh, the dynamic. Uh, and then we had ELA and, and headlines uh, from that, obviously Spain moving uh, for more Eurofighter aircraft. Kind of give us this, you know, it's a little bit of a dog's dinner of a week from a European perspective, but talk to us a little bit about what you thought were the key developments in the week, what they really mean, and how they shaped how the group is performing in Europe. Yeah, okay. I mean, first of all, just to go back to, you know, Ron's point on uh, share price performance, actually, the thing that um, uh, I was struck by is that pretty much, every, well, every single European stock underperformed the um, MSCI Global uh, Index in dollars. So, uh, although it was a risk on week and stocks ended the week well, European stocks generally underperformed by somewhere between you know one and one and five percent actually, just by not going up as much as everything else. Um, there wasn't a, a huge amount of rhyme or reason as to which stock did well or or badly. I mean, I think it was almost certainly more due to individual fund managers, individual uh, you know investment banks just taking a view on uh, you know their particular book and, and what they had to buy and sell. I really can't look. I'm, I'm looking at this scatter diagram of, of share price performances, and I can't make out what the theme was there, except that the MSCI, which is the global index that fund managers in Europe tend to look at, um, did better than everything except General Dynamics and Raytheon, which clearly had, had very, very good weeks. So, um, yeah, I, I, and let's go on to um, ILA next, because um, it's one of the other uh, European defence and aerospace shows. Um, it made a, a an effort 20 years ago to sort of muscle in between Paris and Farnborough and uh, never quite made it. In fact, didn't make it. So it now occurs in the same year as Farnborough, but a couple of weeks early. And it's a very, very German show and nothing wrong with that. More civil than military. But lo and behold, Spain turns up and orders 20 Eurofighters. This is an order that has been known about or a requirement has been known about for some time. It's the Spanish Halfcon uh, project, um, which in, includes ordering some new aircraft uh, to replace all of their F-18s. Unfortunately, Boeing's out of that, that race now. And um, uh, also upgrading all of their Eurofighters with the, uh, the new uh, ESA radar, which is being co-produced with um, Hensel. And why is this good? It's good for, I mean, clearly it's just good because it puts aircraft into the Eurofighter production system. Our view has been, oh, I mean, certainly since the Germans ordered their extra Eurofighters under the Quadriga uh, program, that Eurofighter production will go to the end of the decade. Not, not necessarily very high, 24 a year, plus or minus. Um, but it, you know, it's now got fantastic visibility. And if you had a new generation fighter aircraft program that was going to enter service in 2035, you'd have a near perfect bridge to it. Problem is that if you are uh, Germany or Spain, or indeed France, the uh, SCAF FCAS uh, program now doesn't look like it's going to enter service until 2040 plus plus plus. There's still a decades gap there. But, uh, you know, orders like this are good. Other reason why this order is interesting is it puts pressure on the UK. The UK is the other major country uh, that has not ordered a, a fourth tranche of Eurofighters. Royal Air Force said, no, we don't need them. We'll retire all of our earlier model aircraft anyway. We're fine. And if in doubt, we'll order more F-35s. It's becoming apparent that F-35s are expensive. Um, ben Wallace, the uh, Secretary of State for Defence, does not like it at all. And um, the way the Eurofighter programme works, you have, uh, uh, you know, it's effectively um, uh, what you put in is what you get out uh, as one of the nations, as one of the industries. And it now looks as if more work will be going into France, sorry, into Germany and Spain. And the UK, once the Qatari aircraft are delivered, is going to start, frankly, uh, you know, it's going to be going to be tucking on, on vapor at that stage. And 
there will start to be political and industrial pressure for the UK to order more aircraft, or else UK production line will end and Eurofighter will effectively move to, move to uh, Germany and Spain. And that's politically difficult uh, and is not very useful if uh, BA Systems wants to have a smooth uh, production process from Eurofighter to uh, the Tempest program. My guess would be that the Royal Air Force needs more Eurofighters. I mean, that's frankly totally apparent. And this is one of those things, you know, put it under the category of uh, inconvenient truth, that will put pressure on the UK to order another tranche of Eurofighters. 24, probably, maybe even 36. Uh, get the Eurofighter force up to somewhere in the, you know, sort of 100, 120, 140 aircraft um, and give a really good body of aircraft that carry through uh, well into the 2050s. Um, I think, you know, the Spanish order was very helpful in that regard. The other big theme that I thought came out of uh, ILA was the um, issue of supply chain, where, but where Boeing was very clear, supply chain is going to be horrible until the end of 23. And Guillaume Forey, the chief executive of Airbus, was slightly more nuanced and basically said, we really don't know, but it's going to be into 2023. Well, you know, it's the same thing. Basically, supply chain is the problem. Both companies production targets, but Boeing doesn't really have one, but Airbus certainly has a production target for 2022 is high risk, very, very high risk. They're, they're forecasting 720 deliveries. My, my guess would be it'll be high 600s because the supply chain in individual spots and places will just let them down. And this idea that you can uh, build lots of aircraft for stock and then deliver them all in November, December, I think will just prove much harder than it's been in previous years. So that, that I think, was the most interesting civil story. But I, you know, I defer to uh, Richard and Ron on the, on the Emirates side of it. Um, I, I want to, um, uh, Richard, do you want to uh, have a brief comment? I mean, the only thing I want to point out, you know, however much Ben Wallace may or may not like the F-35, it, it, I don't want to use the chalk and cheese uh, uh, phrase so popular in your great nation, but one is a high altitude air dominance interceptor, and the other one is a lower altitude stealthy strike jet. They are very, very different in terms of their mission profile, what it is they can do and how they do it, even though the F-35 tends to be very, very good in that mission and game changing, even if it is a lower altitude airplane than, uh, for, uh, for example, uh, the, um, the Eurofighter. Uh, just uh, really yeah, but, quickly. Yeah, but hang, uh, hang on, hang on, Bobby. Yeah. That's fine if you're the US Air Force and you have a multiplicity of absolutely superb aircraft that can do each role perfectly. Every European Air, Air Force buys an F-35 to do almost everything, including high-altitude intercept. Um, you know, European Air Forces don't generally have the luxury of two, three, four different sorts of aircraft uh, where, where, where you can sort of pick and mix for the, for the perfect roles. I am uh, agreeing with you. I think it's a terrific airplane. If you recall, when Japan was looking for a high-altitude interceptor, Eurofighter thought it saw an opportunity, and it, it ended up being with the F-35, uh, ultimately, as, as the single airplane to perform that mission. Uh, and depending on who you talk to, it's very, very good at being able to, to bracket in, in, in the fashion, even though the RAF uh, has been using this in, in a more bifurcated uh, manner. I, I want to keep moving on because we're very, very tight on time. Uh, Kevin joined us, and it was a great conversation at the, at the top of the program. Uh, Richard, uh, I want to go to the commercial market in a second, but anything you want to add on the Eurofighter order and, and Sasha's analysis of it and what it means? Yeah, altitude and time to climb are still hugely important, and I'll slightly reverse myself. The SAS panel also said that it would not accept the retirement of 33 older F-22s, which goes to show that that kind of very capable high-end, high-altitude, fast platform is more relevant than ever. So it's not just a question of waiting until NGAD. It's also a question of keeping the rather limited number of F-22s in service, despite the relatively high upgrade costs associated to that early tranche. So I, I think this is one universal theme that given the nature of the threat, it's no longer the sort of, you know, Swiss Army knife stealth good, you know, great mission equipment package the F-35 offers, but it's a question of getting back to that very high end performance that uh, was once characteristic of Cold War militaries. 
And uh, I would I would point out right that the Eurofighter Force, uh, the RAF Eurofighter Force, is getting uh, a workout uh, because of uh, uh, Russian uh, attempted incursions on British uh, and indeed NATO and European airspace writ large. Right, lots of imagery of F-35s on intercept missions. Uh, and if I can just quickly add to that, you know, it's ahead. kind of ironic that Britain is the country that is not buying more because once upon a time the Germans, you know, semi-denigrated you know, the Eurofighter IFA as the English fighter aircraft, because it was clearly designed to meet RAF needs, whereas the Germans were more looking at an attack model. And, you know, they're, they're lukewarm uh, latecomers to the F-35 program. So things aren't quite going the way you'd think they should in a lot of ways. Uh, in, in, uh, indeed. Um, I, it has uh, been a uh, still crazy commercial uh, air travel uh, week uh, worldwide. Uh, Ron got caught up in it uh, going to the UK last week. Uh, I'm a bit dreading it going to the UK for the RAF Global Air Chiefs Conference, Riyadh and the Farnborough Air Show. And indeed, all of us will be there. So to our audience, we're going to do uh, daily updates uh, from the show on what we thought was uh, was interesting. Uh, Richard, kind of give us a quick commercial aviation roundup and where we find ourselves and use that as a bit of a segue on the Emirates wanting more big planes and and what that means and what that means at a time with 777X uh, being in trouble and A380s as much as you loathe them. Uh, and you and I have joked about this for many years as the A3 Turkey uh, are coming back. Yes, I can, I can still recall you using that uh, the term for the first time many years ago and uh, thinking it was utterly brilliant. You know, it's amazing. Just the Accompanied angle. with an explosive uh, Turkey impersonation, if I recall. <laughs> I see recall. That's exactly right. Um, but it's really extraordinary, the, the, uh, the angle of the uptick and, of course, just the hugely labor-intensive process of de-pickling jets and finally finding crews and everything like that. And this week saw inevitable regional service cuts by United and American basically saying, yeah, we just can't do that. We would love to service Ithaca. We really would, but we can't. We just don't have the capacity, the personnel bandwidth, anything like that. So you're seeing people prioritize you know, the, the main trunk and international routes, mostly just domestic because international is still relatively slow, but everything is taxing the system. You know, I, I guess we could have seen this coming. Some people should have seen this coming. Some did and they planned for it, you know, and many didn't. <laughs> and we're kind of paying the price. And as you know, we're flying to Europe on Tuesday and um, I'm not looking forward to changing planes and finding our flights been canceled or what, whatever seems almost routine these days. Um, read for Emirates and its comments. Yeah, really interesting because, of course, their traffic is all international, 100%, pretty much, and uh, all wide body. You know, they're, they're substantially, their very substantial fleet is, is unique in that it is 100% wide bodies for, for a carrier of that size. That's, that's unusual. Um, and they've always had this kind of slot maximization philosophy. So you get in with, a, you get into Manchester, you take an A380 to Manchester, why not? You know, and uh, they won't be getting A380s because the line is dead. <clears throat> they were the only customer that really liked it. And uh, so that leaves them with 777Xs, but Boeing isn't cooperating and execution has become a major issue. There are vague rumors, hopefully they'll stay vague rumors of pro program cancellation. Certainly hope that doesn't happen. And they're talking about getting more A350s. Presumably 1000s is you know, the biggest jet they can get in the absence of short-term 777Xs. Um, in other words, they're seeing what's happening on domestic routes and they think it's going to be repeated on international routes where the system just doesn't uh, facilitate for the comeback that happens at a much faster than, uh, than you know, it, it's that old phrase about economics, you know, things take longer to happen than you think they're going to take, but when they happen, they happen faster than you ever imagined they would. And you're certainly seeing that they're expecting it good for them. I, you know, I hope it works out that way um, because right now, you know, international traffic is still, you know, 50% less than what it, you know, used to be. Domestic, of course, for most markets, aside from China, we're pretty much at, you know, we're almost there in terms of getting back. And that's what's taxing the system. Uh, real quick, Ron and uh, Sash to uh, play on that before we go to our uh, NGAD and Dave Gitlin uh, part of the conversation. Yeah, I mean, really, I mean, the only thing I might add, and this is just sort of in my, my small sphere of, of what I experience is um, fleets seem pretty tired. Uh, you know, the aircraft I flew over to the UK were some pretty long on the two six sevens and 
Um, it seems like not only uh, are on the U.S. side, uh, airline labor um, kind of getting tired out, it seems like the fleet's getting tired out, that there should be some sort of pileup of MRO activity happening when that kind of eventually flows through. Uh, and then it seems like on both sides of the Atlantic, anyway, it's a little bit different. It seems like the issues on this side of the Atlantic are, are at the airlines and on the other side of the Atlantic are at the, um, at the airports themselves. Um, so it's uh, a multitude of, 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 I think, stretched uh, labor forces across the universe of aviation that are adding to the difficulties. Sash? Yeah, I, actually, it's a very interesting point that um, uh, Ron makes about just, you know, an, an aging, tired fleet, and particularly long haul, because long haul has been utterly neglected for now, you know, getting on for three years. Um, and, you know, if you look, the biggest single quoted um, or, uh, yeah, you know, you know, quoted company for doing aircraft interiors, and it's the interiors that, that I think really stand out as being tired now. Um, uh, certainly on this side of the pond is Safran, which bought the old Zodiac business, uh, what, about six, seven years ago now. And Safran have been playing down expectations for any sort of recovery in Zodiac. And it's going to be the last business to come out of the downturn. But, you know, I just wonder whether that business will surprise us uh, come sort of mid-2023. They'll start to see uh, refurbishment uh, work building up. Just one point on Emirates. Um, again, and this is... Uh, you know, I'm just hypothesizing here, but um, Qatar Airways has had to announce that they're going to make more slots available into Qatar uh, for the uh, World Cup football. Um, and, and that's because Qatar decided for no good reason to ground all of their A350-1000s um, and enter into a prolonged uh, legal dispute with Airbus. So they just don't have the capacity anymore. I do wonder whether uh, Emirates is thinking, if we buy some A351,000s, if we add a bit of capacity, we can take some, some uh, business from Qatar over the next 18 months or so, uh, and some of that will stick. Interesting. Um, time is running short. We're going to move on with our last two uh, big topics uh, of this show. Uh, and Ron, I want you to uh, start us off. Uh, Air Force Secretary Frank Kendall, who knows his way around acquisition, obviously the former undersecretary. Uh, at the Pentagon uh, for acquisition before he took on this job in the Biden administration. Um, we have been speculating for some time about who we think might be the NGAD, uh, the, the company that is taking this program, uh, which has now gone into engineering and manufacturing development, uh, is not, has not yet been decided, uh, that a winner has not yet been uh, picked, which appears to be stunning. And so Ron and Richard want to get your sense on what this means, what his, I mean, the only thing I can, you know, I was going to say the bomber program before uh, Secretary Gates canceled it, uh, right, because of the dissimilar nature of the competition between Northrop that was doing a uh, revised B-2 design, uh, and then Boeing and Lockheed having not made that cut, uh, ending up teaming, and then being able to get into uh, the development uh, of the competition and, and um, um, you know, Gates didn't like it because he said, look, I mean, it doesn't appear that you guys know what this airplane wants to be. You know, is it going to be a supersonic, stealthy, high altitude airplane or something more uh, conventional in its design? Uh, and you've seen concerns uh, being expressed by the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee on this, uh, on, on NGAD. So, Ron, start us off. Uh, and then, uh, uh, Richard, I want to get uh, your take on it. Sash, you're welcome to uh, chime in uh, as well, if, if you'd like. Uh, and then we really do have to talk about Dave uh, Gitlin and whether this former Collins executive may actually be joining Boeing's board to take a more meaningful management role uh, in the future of, a company, of the company at a time when people have been, uh, and we among them, questioning uh, the company's future. Go ahead, Ron, start us off on, on NGAP. Yeah, I mean, I mean, historically, you know, EMD, engineering, manufacturing, development, is where the system is developed before it goes into production, right? I mean, it's a generally a, a key key milestone in a program. Um, so, you know, if it's if it is an EMD, but they haven't, you know, picked a contractor yet as for the program, it, it almost doesn't make sense unless they broke up the de the design of the program from the fabrication of the program. Right, you know, we've talked about that before. Um, you know, unless they redefine what EMD means, you know, 
EMD means, you know, this is a phase that happens after milestone B, which is you're considered the formal start of any program. Um, so if, if, if it truly is an EMD and they haven't picked a contractor yet, so somebody designed it. So clearly they picked somebody to do that. So are they talking about who's going to build it? Um, Cause if they haven't picked a contractor to design it yet, then they can't really be an EMD. You, you know what I mean? It doesn't, you can't you know, circle that square or whatever you want to call it. Um, so it's, it, I think it's still a, a, a bit of an open question and maybe they're trying to obfuscate what's going on for, I don't know, for whatever reason. Um, but um, if they truly are an EMD, somebody designed something uh, and this next step would be, you know, going into uh, what you do to do to, to production. Right. I mean, he, he spoke at AF, I and mean, I should point this out to the audience and I should have earlier, he spoke at uh, the Air Force Association uh, uh, last week on Friday uh, and, you know, and, and, and said that this notion of moving, um, you know, fielding new versions every five years is simply too complex. And that's what uh, uh, Will Roper obviously had called for when he was acquisition chief to try to get into these faster development cycles. But he said it's not a simple uh, design. Um, and what he said was, quote, the NGAD that we're working on now uh, is going to take longer. It is more a more complicated operation to have a manned aircraft that will follow on to the F-22, is what he said. Uh, and obviously, John Turpak was among uh, the many uh, great reporters to, to write on this. Uh, Richard, uh, your your take on, on, on where we are, and we do have to move uh, to Dave Gitlin as well, given we're running short on time. Yeah, yeah. Who could forget those goofy days of the Digital Century series when it would be a relatively simple matter of just, you know, iterating every five years? Yeah. I mean, who could have seen that coming except um, anybody who lives in the real world? No, it doesn't work like that. And we're seeing that now. Now, what is interesting, as Bron says, you know, what the heck's going on? Because it's one thing to have a couple of contractors prototyping, prototyping at the DEMVAL stage, as we saw with ATF back 30 years ago. And then you move to EMD when you select the design. Why? I, I mean, does this mean there are two different full-up air vehicle contractors that have been selected for EMD? That sounds like a colossal misuse of money. I don't quite get it, Un unless they've broken the program up, as, as Ron suggests. Maybe they moved EMD, you know, for the mission systems, you know, that kind of thing. And then the air vehicles, they're still kind of in this separate swim lane, prototyping multiple contractors, and they'll figure out, you know, sort of body and soul, how to mate it all together. It's it's all a bit unconventional, uh, confusing, but eh, at least we're past that digital century series nonsense. Uh, well, the digital century, century series is good if you do it, or if I may, as somebody who was one of the original thinkers of this idea a long time ago. It, it works if you do it systemically. You waste a lot of money rebuilding airframes at D-checks and things like that, right? You, if you make that leap in, it's easier to build the airframe than rebuild the airframe at these centers, and you decide what you're going to do, and you leverage technology, and you have component commonality, then you can do it. But, that, but that's not how we do things now, right? So, so well, it, it won't also work. I mean, I'd also point out that all the real progress is on the onboard systems and sensors. So right, why would you bother reiterating different air vehicles when it's really the individual, you know, the, the architecture of the, and, and the mission systems that, that really should be changed? What, one of the things that uh, Secretary Kendall said, which I think is interesting, is the crewed vehicle will be the play caller, the quarterback, while the other unmanned platforms will perform tailored missions using modular sensors, uh, et cetera, right? I mean, he said, we still want to get into this, you know, fast upgrade uh, cycle, right? I mean, so he's not necessarily saying like, hey, you know, we're moving away from this idea of five-year centers, but he's saying, hey, we can move much, much faster, but that this particular platform uh, is, is a little bit of a challenge in terms of the connectivity and all the other um, automated features that go into it. Um, any, anybody want to add anything before we go for our no more than two minute long conversation on Dave Gitlin? Well, just one quick thing about, you know, the sure. relationship between NGAD and any, you know, subordinate air vehicles. We still don't know what the ideal loyal wingman looks like. Is it a swarm of little things or is it something like Boeing's ghost bat, you know, for Australia or the, or the mosquito right. in Britain? In which case, that would be interesting to see. Maybe there is, you know, faster iteration for those small air vehicles. And of course, multiple contractors still, you know, but in terms of that one, that quarterback, as he, as he put it, you know, I would think that would be decided by the time it waited to EMD. 
Um, uh, in, 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 indeed, again, I mean, the way that uh, Frank answered that, right, is, you know, we still have competition uh, without being specific, saying that it, is, it remains a highly classified program. So it is possible the two are moving forward. And, there, you know, is it two slightly dissimilar designs uh, that, that, are, that are going forward uh, that may have very, very different attributes? Anyway. Um, we will follow this up. I don't think we're going to have this have this sorted out in a in a in another week. Uh, really uh, quickly, uh, Ron, start us off. Dave Gitlin, uh, very very well respected uh, executive, uh, left Collins um, relatively recently, uh, and now you know is he joining the board in order to be the next generation of talent that Boeing can use at a time when it needs energized, thoughtful leadership to get out of the mess. Again, not trying to be discharitable to Dave Calhoun and the gang there, uh, but you know, obviously we've been talking about this and we're not alone. Uh, give me about a minute and Richard, give us about a minute on what you think, given that you two know Dave Gitlin very, very well. So strictly speaking, Boeing had to add someone to the board who had knowledge, you know, a, 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 a bandwidth of industry knowledge by because of the settlement with the government uh, around the lawsuit, right? So they had to add a member to the board who had relevant experience, which Dave clearly does. Um, as you mentioned, Dave's got a great pedigree, um, you know, worked his way up at United Technologies, eventually was running Collins Aerospace. And then when the uh, United Technologies did their spins of spinning out Otis and Carrier, he had the opportunity to become the CEO of Carrier and by kind of all measures did a bang up job there. Uh, it's still there. I mean, he's not, he's not leaving uh, as far as we know, but um, uh, he's doing a fine job there. And now potentially, you know, well, not potentially, he's going to be back on Boeing's board uh, or be on Boeing's board for the first time. Uh, and you know, so you've got, a, you know, uh, an individual with a lot of talent um, who's on the board, relevant talent. And, and, and I think there's a couple of ways to look at it. One, you know, potentially, yeah. I mean, could, is this some form of succession planning? Maybe, yeah, who knows? I mean, but I don't, I don't think that's a, you know, um, um, potentially wrong way to look at it. It might not be the right way, but I mean, it's, it's a possibility. Um, and then two, and I find this kind of fascinating. If you look at the makeup of the board, um, you've got, you know, David Joyce on the board, um, Dave Calhoun on the board, um, Boeing CFO is a GE guy. So you've got a big GE presence at the top of, um, of Boeing. But now with, with Dave Gitlin on the board and Akil Jory on the board, Akil was the CFO of uh, United Technologies and Dave like we just mentioned, had a high ranking position in the aerospace business. Um, are you starting to see a bit of, um, uh, how can I say it, a, a balance between um, you know, these, these, these two cultures, DE versus um, United Technologies, Raytheon Technologies today, uh, kind of for the soul of Boeing going forward? We'll see, I don't know. Um, but I think it's an interesting story to watch and putting Dave on the board is definitely a move in the right direction. No matter what, it's a move in the right direction. Richard? Yeah, I agree completely. Um, you know definitely one of the best moves they've made uh, with the board in a very long time. You know, you don't have to go very, back very far when there was a, an embarrassing paucity of any technical or even aerospace content on the board. It was just truly one of the worst boards ever, uh, to put it bluntly. And they've been changing that. A few nice additions. I think this is the best edition yet. So very strong endorsement. He is a lawyer rather than an engineer, but one with a great deal of engineering experience. And, you know, one of Boeing's best CEOs, Frank Schrantz, was a lawyer too. So, you know, it's right. not without precedent. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's it's a very good bit of news. All right, guys. Thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. It's always a treat. I uh, hope you guys have uh, a great uh, day, a great week, uh, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so very much. Uh, great to be here, Vago. Thank you very much. Yeah, always a pleasure, Vago. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for doing this. Really enjoyed it a lot. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.